The truth is, farming is so bloody romantic, you can't escape it. And don't believe anybody who tells you otherwise. It is diving deeply into the complete mystery of the black soil. It is sex in the rain and the mud and the dew and the snow. It is messy, exotic, untamed birth. It is a riotous, adventurous life. It is dying when the time arrives. It is the violent storm and gentle rain, the nurturing warmth and the oppressing heat. It is happiness and joy and exhaustion and despair. It is a parched throat and a full belly and sweet dreams and sleepless nights. It is an unceasing grind and it is a constant wonder. This is the truth. Welcome to Unwinding, a podcast that tells the human stories driving the minds and talents of the University of Kansas. In each episode, we sit down with KU researchers in a favorite or familiar setting to chat about what they're working on, why they're passionate about it, why it matters, and what makes them tick as humans. Wherever the location, the conversation explores the fascinations and motivations that produce new discoveries. Unwinding is a collaboration between the Commons at the University of Kansas and KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. It's hosted by Emily Ryan, the Director of the Commons, and produced by Mark Sheaves, Assistant Director of Communications for the College, who sometimes asks questions. I really do believe, after doing this for 16 years now, that our small farmers around the world are really going to be one of the keys to solving and mitigating things like climate change and the effects of agricultural pollution, uh, how we how we get food to people that need it, whether it's people in East Lawrence or people in sub-Saharan Africa. I think that these problems are interrelated and a lot of the potential solutions come from linking small farmers in ways that can demonstrate are actually effective. It's episode two and we're unwinding with Paul Stock, an environmental sociologist and Mr. Rogers optimist. Hi Paul. Hi Emily. Hi Mark. <laughs> Hi. Would you start us by just introducing yourself a bit for us? Yeah, my name's Paul Stock. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri and I study farmers. I study farmers and their families in, in their communities predominantly how they respond to changes in the international economy, which sounds really complicated, but on the ground and in their lives, it takes place in often small and what most people would see as unexpected ways. I teach classes in sociology and the environmental studies department. Can I just jump in and ask a question of yeah. how the global changes affect one particular farmer, if you have a case study? or Yeah, so before I came to Kansas, I lived and worked and did research in New Zealand. And for the last 40 years, New Zealand has gone from being predominantly a sheep farming country. The joke was there are 4 million people in New Zealand and 40 million sheep. That changed in the mid-1980s. The sheep farmers used to get paid for every sheep that they had. And so from the mid-70s to early 80s, that meant sheep farms exploded in size. And then all of a sudden in 1984, that money from the government disappeared, which meant that a lot of sheep farming families 
who had either just purchased land or a whole bunch more sheep or taken out a new loan were really left in the lurch. And that was connected to these wider changes of economic privatization of what we call neoliberalization, which is that process of privatizing, basically shifting financial and social services away from government entities onto communities and companies, which then affects the poorest and the marginalized the most, including farmers who are at a smaller scale. What that meant was that with some changes in technology and the regional setup of dairy farming in New Zealand, that strangely, New Zealand is now the world's largest dairy export, which has had dramatic changes on families, which has had dramatic changes at the community level, mainly because you can run a whole bunch of sheep with a truck and a dog in New Zealand versus dairy cows that need to be milked two, if not three times a day, which often means you have staff, machinery, more outbuildings, a lot more capital investment but it also means you have less time to volunteer at the local school. So dramatic shift, as well as creating immigration issues, where a lot of the people who milk cows now in New Zealand are not New Zealand high school students. They are Filipino and Fijian, which creates language issues and creates all sorts of community dynamics that rural communities especially weren't dealing with previously. So coming from that, I kind of want to introduce the space that we're in because I realize that we understand it because we're in it and can see it. We're in a space right now that is part of a common ground plot Mm -hmm. in Lawrence. I was wondering if you could talk just a bit about connecting ideas and observations between communities in New Zealand and Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah. I mean, so we're in this common ground plot, which is technically city-owned land that is leased essentially for free to people interested in growing food, potentially incubating an entrepreneurial food growing or agricultural business. And we have some really successful examples already in the last few years. And to me, it speaks volumes because this entire program was sparked out of city and county administrator who had come from a place that had a similar program and had a passion for helping local food systems grow, saw them as a dynamic and energizing factor, not just for the food system, but as a economic generator in in the place. And had a conversation with the mayor at the time who loved gardens and thought it was a good idea. And all of a sudden this vacant city land is now being farmed and we're surrounded by these beautiful flowers and a pollinator garden and vegetables that are growing. School children have come out here and KU classes have come out here to talk with some of the people who are gardening. And so it's a really dynamic illustration of little to not much community investment as having these huge gains. both for the actual ground and soil and the animals that we're surrounded by, but the people that are curious and interested in, do I want to grow food for a living as a job, as a, as a profession? Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that you mentioned that classes have been out here because I think it's a non-traditional classroom of sorts, right? And I'm wondering... How do students react or respond when they're... Because you take students to farms as well. But how do students react or respond when you're taking them out of the classroom to take 
Well, I mean, it, it is unusual. And, you know, as a social scientist, the idea of taking students out of the classroom can be shocking. You know, we often will write assignments that say, you have to go do something. I remember when I was an undergraduate and I took a, a class on society and the law, like one of our assignments was we had to go to the courthouse. That was really powerful because I, I went to school in a rural town, Truman State University in Kirksville, Missouri. And it's seared in my brain because it seemed so absurd. I'll never forget the judge saying this one case. And you did not ask that person to intentionally set fire to your house, correct? It's like, oh. It was a weird case, <laughs> arson or so, obviously some miscommunication. But to just be out in the world as a student is, is important. Yeah. And when you do school, as I say in my class, it can be somewhat isolating mm -hmm. and, and, and feel like it's happening in a vacuum. And so when I do teach sociology of global food, we do visit. We've visited this, this plot before and we've talked with you. And the last time I taught the class, we visited a local farmer and carpenter who has some sheep, but it's really a small homestead. But we, it's over in Jefferson County. We do it on Friday mornings and we got back to class on Tuesday. A class of 18, like five of them said, yeah, I called my parents. We <laughs> wow. went to a farm That's and awesome. it was really exciting and I'd never been on a farm before so thank you. I was like to me it's like I spend all my time on farms <laughs> it feels like and mm -hmm. so even fostering that experience mm -hmm. can we can forget how important it is and how valuable it is. There are lots of chances for them to volunteer. We have we, KU does have a student farm which is up by the airport and so there are plots available that and a, a student farm group. Um, I feel that it's more important to be talking with uh, the farmers and the growers and the, you know, we've visited with the sustainability officials in the city before. We went to the, the community orchard one time. Yeah. We visited with the Sunrise Project, which is a social justice oriented organization on campus that is partially a greenhouse but also a group advocating for increased food access to marginalized groups as well as for advocating and giving space for community conversations around these kinds of things food deserts food access equitability in our food system and what the community can do to encourage those things so can i for a second to jump yeah. off the idea of because you're bringing up the role of a sociologist here and i think to people it may not be obviously connected in the very beginning thinking about farms and thinking about ecology and this you know like biological sciences and the way that understanding a farm works but your research specifically is as you've said working with the people who work the farms mm -hmm. could you talk a bit about your process for working with them and what an interview looks like and that kind of thing oh sure learning how to interview people as you're finding by doing this <laughs> podcast yeah. is a uh, we're learning. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very iterative process that is very much based on trust and establishing that trust. Emily and I have had a, a working relationship and friendship for basically since I got here, KU. You know, so this is not the first time we're sitting down and talking about these issues. Sure. Depending on the project, like when I was in New Zealand, I was cold calling farmers across the country so there are slight regional differences, there are accent differences. Some people that, you know, had 
immigrated from Scotland, say, 40 years ago, but sound like it was yesterday. And yeah. <laughs> you're, you're then clarifying. But it's always particularly at the beginning about building that trust. And often with farmers, and this, this holds true in the United States, that if there's a researcher coming, more than likely they're used to dealing with someone from the government, from what we call extension, which are our people tasked with helping solve problems or help um, build partnerships for market access or seed access or, or all kinds of things. So very rarely are they used to someone asking about their life as a farmer, which is really where my concerns lie. Most interviews start with a real level of skepticism until through the questions and how I, on on their part. So through the questions that I ask, it's about trying to really convince them that no, I'm actually concerned with how these things affect your life, your family's decisions, and what you think that's gonna mean for the future. So it's always about building trust. And that becomes an important part of my longer term research in that I really do believe after doing this for 16 years now, that our small farmers around the world are really gonna be one of the keys to solving and mitigating things like climate change and the effects of agricultural pollution, uh, how, we, how we get food to people that need it, whether it's people in East Lawrence or people in Sub-Saharan Africa. I think that these problems are interrelated and a lot of the potential solutions come from linking small farmers in ways that I'm hoping my research can demonstrate are actually effective. This Common Ground program, it's very small. There are actually very few people involved in it. Yet, we have significant success stories that are important that can be adapted in other parts of the country and other parts of the world. And I think those are just as valid stories to tell as, say, a USDA program or something that comes from the private sector that's a new technological breakthrough. Because if there's anything that we've learned over the course of the last 150 years is that there are not single solutions to the major problems our world is facing. So that's a really good transition point, I think, to talk about a project that you started at the university a couple of years ago. Wow, it's been almost eight at this point, I think, mm-hmm. called Food Utopias. Yep. And that's how we first met, I think, it right? Is. So the Commons used to have a program called the Seed Grant where they would fund startup ideas for research that were interdisciplinary. And so you came to a meeting, an information session about that, and from it, this Food Utopias project was born. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, and going back to stressing the importance of relationships, is this was an idea born out of sharing an office with a, a colleague and friend of mine in New Zealand, Chris Rosen, who was also a postdoc at the University of Otago in a interdisciplinary research center, the Center for Sustainability. His work was also looking at some utopian things. I did my dissertation research on the Catholic Worker Movement, which is a decentralized organization of social justice-oriented activists, some of which come from a Catholic faith background, some come from an anarchist political leanings. My particular interest was on 
the fact that various Catholic worker institutions around the country have had what we would call uh, communal farms since the 1930s in the midst of the Great Depression. We didn't use the language of sustainability then, but they were essentially advocating for self-sufficiency, sustainability, the importance of green spaces in people's lives, access to growing food, access to nature, which we know has rehabilitative effects on our physical and mental health. There's an entire movement called care farming where gardening and access to horses, caring for other kinds of animals, and doing physical labor has restorative health effects. I would testify to that yeah, as well. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, we have lots of stories of like mm-hmm. talking about unwinding of where people end up in their garden at yeah. the end of the day. I should do that more. Right, <laughs> right. We all should. One of the things when you study an organization like the Catholic Worker Movement is that you very quickly get into other stories of communally oriented and utopian experiments, particularly in the United States, but also globally, of people that say, modern society's crazy, I need to drop out in some way or be less involved in the rat race, the office workplace, you name it. We have lots of different descriptions for it. David Graeber, the academic anarchist and anthropologist, just wrote this new book called Bullshit Jobs about how we've proliferated all these jobs in which people feel no meaning or attachment to and yet get paid gobs and gobs of money and they don't know psychologically how to reconcile the two. And it it creates a real sense, uh, to use a sociological term, of anomie, like I don't know where I fit in the wider picture. That's my kind of avenue of thinking of utopias. They often get dismissed as failures because they don't last. People fight, no one is tending the garden anymore, or no one wants to wash the dishes, or, you know, so they can, you know, dissolve. But the thinking and the ideas behind them keep getting tried in various iterations. Mm. We have lots and lots of examples. So it's that experimentalism that I was trying to bring to the dialogue around food systems is that just because something doesn't last forever doesn't mean it's not worthwhile to study. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, lots of areas of the campus would be seen as meaningless. And we do hear those dialogues that maybe you shouldn't study you know, obscure literature or whatever. And yet, what's the point of living in a, a free and open democracy if we aren't going to be free to, to study yeah. our creations as human persons? So that utopian thinking, whether they're from literature or communal experiments, I think that sense of experimentation, the Mm -hmm. emphasis on process and not necessarily finished products is a really important thing to consider when we hear so much of our food public dialogue as how are we going to feed 10 billion people? Well, there aren't 10 billion people yet and we can't feed everybody who's here now. So the solutions you're saying we have to do more of aren't working. So we need to be looking in different places to potentially fill in the where we're not getting it. And I think I'm trying to think of the constituency of that group. I think you had religion, a religious mm-hmm. scholar, but you even had science fiction yep. writers involved in that conversation. We did, and farmers, and farm advocates, and ecologists, and 
And the ecologist, uh, I famously remember, was like, as we were writing the grant, said, I think you should drop the word utopias. People get yeah. are, are uneasy about it. And I'm glad I didn't because it fosters feelings. I, I like to write that even if you don't like utopias, you have feelings about them. And that's what we need to start dialogue. Mm-hmm. As the Commons has hosted these mm-hmm. series on, what is it called? What's an uncomfortable oh, dialogue? Framing, framing the dialogue or difficult dialogue. Difficult or, dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Is that, you know, some of the most important things that we have to talk about are the hardest things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And food access, trying to take a narrative that's counter to the mainstream Mm -hmm. in terms of how the majority of Americans think about food and agriculture is, well, there's just going to be less farmers, they're going to be bigger farms, they're going to be more technological, and wouldn't it be great if we could get all our food in a pill? It's a a form of technological utopianism that has an actual faith that we're just going to magically be able to feed everybody if we just keep waiting for the scientists to do their work and then the manufacturers will do their work and it'll all be solved in the near future. That sounds awful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of like pace and all those sensory things, you know, as a consumer as well. well and, and the tradition and culture, the, the, the what food does for not just your personal biophysical health, yeah. but in how we share it with one another, how we share it in communities, and, and even globally that, you know, the transmission of recipes and cuisines is an important way of experiencing the rest of the world. Yeah. When you travel somewhere, you find restaurants. I mean, that's a key, right? You yeah. You want to try a different kind of food. And, yeah. yeah. Or you make make friends from other parts of the world, and what what is one way that you share who you are is, for me, I got to take friends I'd met through my time in New Zealand and doing academic work. We had a conference in Canada, and so I got to take friends from New Zealand, Italy, and Switzerland to their first baseball game and share hot dogs and nachos and really big brewery beer in the context of what to them seemed insane. 40,000 people watching people hit a baseball uh, without understanding the rules. But we shared it together and that's a a big part of friendship is like, I know this is weird but it's what I grew up with. Now you've experienced it and we can talk about it and share it. Yeah. Speaking of sharing, um, I'm thinking about the way that your work has evolved then over time and the more recent project that you've been working on called New Farmers, which has been a collaboration with Tim Hostler in design and Brian Darby, a photographer. And congratulations, I, there's a book coming out soon, I think. Fingers crossed, yeah. Tim's yeah. been working diligently and should be in print by the end of the year. We, we will see. There are a couple okay. of hiccups, but that is the hope. Great. So thinking about sharing. I, I know that a lot of the book talks about, and uh, the, uh, the exhibition in its previous iterations, has talked a lot about the experiences that new farmers in this area have as they're learning new ways of doing things and trying new things and <clears throat> running into new challenges. And I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how you came up with that collectively, mm-hmm. how you came up with that idea, yep. then also what that looks like in terms of collecting the, the data. Sure, sure. Well, and 
again, it does come back to relationships. Is Brian is a photographer, and we were in a teaching workshop about incorporating issues of sustainability into our courses. And for me, it was coming off of the experience of doing Food Utopias, which was a workshop where we invited people, both academics, but also from the, the area who were farmers and farm advocates. And, and so I was looking for a project of who are the people doing some of this experimentation mm-hmm. that we were writing about with Food Utopias. And so that had led me to, well, then that means it's going to be people that are new to farming. And Brian offhand had been going to the farmer's market regularly and really getting to know some of them and like I think has dreams of running a small farm at at some (laughs) level so he's like said I'm really interested in new farmers and I'm sitting just a few seats down I'm like so am I we have to talk (laughs) and we didn't write a grant or anything he contacted one of the farmers at our Lawrence farmers market and said would you be willing to talk to us and could we photograph you? That's how this project that's been going on for four and a half years now started. We mm. literally drove out to Amy's farm. And this is Amy's a- Meats. Amy's Meats uh, here in Lawrence, just across the county line. Uh, Amy's Meats at the homestead. And we spent an afternoon talking about some of these issues of what are the, the hurdles. So new farmers is the the category has kind of evolved because like Amy a a few others their family had experiences in what we would call big agriculture big ag or conventional agriculture for Amy's family the Saunders it was as part of a ranch a couple others were on large row cropping. Uh, Jesse of Mellowfields grew up on a wheat farm in the Dakotas, and uh, another one grew up on a wheat corn Kansas farm. But others had been teachers, had been in the restaurant business, a real variety of backgrounds that have come to farming as a way to live what they think is a better life for for them personally, Mm -hmm. their mental health, for raising children, but they're not just farmers also. A lot of them have done advocacy work, helped run the farmer's market, done research on certain projects. One of the people we've interviewed is now second in command in the local extension office. Other people running CSAs, work at the university. So a real diversity of interests, backgrounds, all of them have different experiences and have tried different experiments, mm-hmm. different crops, different markets, advocating politically for what we call a food hub, which is really a, a distribution center in a region where if you're not involved in something like Walmart or something like Cisco, which is a large food distribution company, if you're not connected into those networks and markets, it's really difficult to be able to put your produce, put your product into a place that can then either be picked up or distributed regionally. Because a lot of our policies and food infrastructure, if you will, go toward supporting the largest scale 
You know, so the economists make the argument that we have to support these economies of scale. Food is so important as a commodity that only at the biggest levels does it make sense economically. But those are all predicated on value assumptions about what's important and what food should and should not look like and what people should and should not have access to, which then become political assumptions, which then become policies. What these new farmers and food utopias is demonstrating with lots of case studies and examples, and not just from the United States, but around the world, is that we have lots of examples where people are growing food, communities and customers are responding to it and advocating for it. And we're not even getting into discussions of food sovereignty, First Nations and indigenous people's way of protecting their own historical and traditional foodways. We're talking about people in communities like Lawrence and even Western Kansas that are advocating, if not politically, by what they're growing and the markets that they're trying to build and link with other other towns and counties. Yeah. I saw a few snippets of the book mm. on Emily's computer with beautiful photography and Emily shared with me a, a quote from the book. Maybe Emily can introduce it. But sure. It was very beautiful and I think gets at that kind of questioning the assumptions people have when they hear the word farmer. Right. I mean, Paul's talked a lot about relationships throughout, right, and how critical that is to the progression of your work. Years ago when I moved back here to Lawrence, I had come from working on a farm and I attended a talk that Phil Holman Hebert of Sweet Love Farm was giving. And before I had met you, I think, mm -hmm. I met Phil. Yep. And then once you and I started talking about your work, I shared the, the statement that he had, had sent to mm -hmm. me in a follow-up to a question that I had asked. But you've incorporated it in the book for a reason, and I'm curious if you would like to set it up and then maybe share it. Yeah. You know, when you, when you interview people, as you know, with friends, family, colleagues, some people are just better with words than others. And so every once in a while you get a... a an interview that is just someone's poetic and Phil would probably scoff if I, I called him poetic but he really is the way he talks about their farm is very passionate and so this has become kind of one of the the, the key snippets from from the project I'll never forget because when you're when you're doing qualitative work there's this tension between how much do you expose an individual person um, and their thoughts, depending on the size of the project, and how much do you let their words kind of be indicative of other patterns that you're trying to find? And so, uh, in the first time we exhibited this work at the Commons, this quotation I'm about to read was right next to another woman we had photographed, and she's come up to me even recently because people still come up to her and mention uh, you were the one who had that comment in that ex no I wasn't <laughs> because we hadn't officially hadn't tagged who said exactly what mm -hmm. but the proximity in the exhibition so this is Phil Holman Hebert talking about the experience of being a farmer he begins it with the truth is farming is so bloody romantic you can't escape it and don't believe anybody who tells you otherwise it is diving deeply into the complete mystery of the black soil. It is sex in the rain and the mud and the dew and the snow. It is messy, exotic, untamed birth. It is a riotous, adventurous life. 
It is dying when the time arrives. It is the violent storm and gentle rain, the nurturing warmth and the oppressing heat. It is happiness and joy and exhaustion and despair. It is a parched throat and a full belly and sweet dreams and sleepless nights. It is an unceasing grind and it is a constant wonder. This is the truth. And so Phil's sentiments are essentially pushing back on hundreds of years of academic sociologists, social scientists, agronomists that say farming is drudgery. We need to have less farmers with the idea being that it's work people don't want to do. One of the constant refrains of interviewing and talking with people in Kansas is in the midst of the 1980s farm crisis is that a whole bunch of children who grew up on a farm were told go away and don't come back. There's no future in farming for you here. Like in an effort to say save yourselves. In, like, in, yeah. in an effort, you know, it was, it was out of love because there was real financial heartbreak, there was loss, there's grief, and it's really an unexamined kind of cultural scar that I think Kansans and the, the United States really suffers because the reality is a lot of that crisis was manufactured, you know? Uh, and I think this is where my work is going in the future a little mm. bit. Um, Good, I was gonna ask that. that. <laughs> is that Wall Street gets hammered for the housing crisis, for the savings and loan back in the 80s. But in reality, our farm banking system has been just as devious and created these crises, just like the housing crisis. It comes with presuming that only a certain kind of success is worth investing in. Mm -hmm. And yet, farmers are a diverse group, even the ones that get lumped together. They want to try new things. They want to put their stamp on their land in a way that shows that they're caretaking it. But what we have in U.S. agriculture right now is a big system that locks people into choices that they don't necessarily want to make or keep to. But that combine is really expensive. Mm -hmm. Land is really expensive. Access to water is sometimes really hard to come by, and when you can, it's often really expensive. And so that means a lot of loans, a lot of mortgages, and often working with creditors and bankers that don't actually know too much about international agriculture. It's really a fragile system that has left a lot of really talented people kind of in the wake mm -hmm. rather than creating policies and financial incentives, entrepreneurship programs to encourage it. And I think that's going to be one of our, our scar, unexamined scars uh, the latter half of the 20th century, that as we look at bigger ecological issues, particularly global climate change, we're going to have handicapped ourselves as a country, as a state, from some of the things that are potentially big time solutions. So as a sort of divergence from this, but related to it, and because it's related to everything you've been talking about in terms of relationships and fostering the next generation and sharing information, but also sharing practices and knowledge. I had the privilege of sitting in on one of your food lab meetings earlier this week, and I wonder if you would talk talk about that as a structure, but also why you're doing that, But because I think it's a little bit different than a way the way that a lot of humanists, people in the humanities, tend to approach research, right? Mm -hmm. Like. But you're bringing in undergraduate and graduate students so that all of you can be sharing and learning from each other. Yep. 
Much of what we do as academics, I, I don't care where where you are, we end up tending to reproduce things that we've experienced. Mm-hmm. And so you'll see scientists build labs that recreate their advisor's lab and mm-hmm. methods in literature or chemistry or history that, that mimic their advisor, the, the, the authors and the, the scholars that they most learn from them. That most resonate. We're all we all do this because something grabbed our attention and literally does not let go. Mm-hmm. We're all kind of captive by an idea that almost prisoners to, mm-hmm. rather than the guiding it. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, one of the more formative experiences was working at the University of Otago at this Center for Sustainability in which it was truly an interdisciplinary anti-hierarchical scholarly space that welcomed undergraduate interns that had graduate students in various fields from working on issues of biodiversity, social science, psychology, tourism, business, engineering, as well as scholars from around the university and guests from around the world. So I think every continent other than Antarctica was represented at various times, various different levels and experiences and government officials, linkages with Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand, scholars. That was so different than any academic experience I'd had in the United States. Mm -hmm. It was so vibrant and often at a very interpersonal level not always a scholarly talk and then a question and answer and then you know trying to get a publication out and writing a grant for the next project Mm -hmm. it was a space that was very collegial friendly but filled with people doing serious scholarship Mm -hmm. that was all tangentially related to how do we take care of and heal the planet Mm -hmm. my hope now with having a secured tenure Mm -hmm. here at KU is how do we build an infrastructure for students who are interested in food and agriculture issues Mm -hmm. to learn from one another. Mm -hmm. For the last year and a half, I've been running what we call the food lab. So students that I'm either officially mentoring or I've had in class and are doing work at various levels on issues related to food and agriculture. We do not have a major. We do not have a food studies department. We do not have an infrastructure to bring those together, like departments and programs, whether it's environmental studies or indigenous studies or uh, women, gender, sexuality, political science, sociology, ecology, evolutionary biology. There isn't a food place on campus for Mm -hmm. students that are interested. And yet, my food class is full every spring, Mm -hmm. even though it's a five-credit class because we do these lab visits and field trip, have students that are interested in at the graduate level who are from geography and sociology and and a couple other places. Um, And so how do we build that infrastructure? Because KU's in a really unique place as a university. We are not a land-grant institution. Land-grant institutions like K-State, University of Missouri, Iowa State, are by law required to help farmers and to study the economics, the social outcomes, the community dynamics of farming and agriculture in particular places. KU is not 
one of those institutions. And so there's a freedom to study these things Mm -hmm. without some of the the financial constraints that have really challenged and hampered programs like the Leopold Center at Iowa State. Kansas State is very much ingrained in this privatization of agriculture that that we talked about earlier, which can be very constraining. But we also don't have a tradition of studying those things at KU. So there's freedom but also challenges that have to do with finances, Mm -hmm. accessing grants that that may work, and simply supporting students who want to do this kind of thing. I think I have one last question for you, which is knowing the time that we're in and the place that we're in in the world right now, September 20th, 2018, if, if there's one sort of piece of information that you can leave with people or that you'd like people to be thinking about as a result of what you've learned over the years of doing this kind of work. One sentence, <laughs> you could do it. Is there, because I'm thinking not only about the content of the work they're doing, but yep. also the style of the way that you're doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot for people to glean from that, to use a farm term. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not one sentence, but I'll try and keep it to one sentence. Is I, I joke with my students is that in 2018, I'm an environmental studies professor and a sociologist. By a lot of logic, I could very well be the most depressed person on campus, and I'm not. Mm. And I think that it's, it's very easy, whether you're following political chaos, inequity in our tax system in Kansas, the state of public education, the ravages of a recent hurricane that we've seen, that in many ways our world is broken and it can feel overwhelming. And yet, if you read history, if you pay attention to politics at all, it's kind of always been broken Mm. in some way, shape, or form. And so you have a choice as a citizen, as a researcher, as a student, to emphasize that brokenness, which will often lead to cynicism, or you can look for the bright spots or the hopeful examples, the people that are working on change. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the, the best films I have seen over the last six months was the documentary about Mr. Rogers. Yeah. How powerful the, the, the film ends with him basically coming out of retirement after 9-11 and emphasizing that people look to those who are helping. And I think that message resonates in so many ways, whether you're a teacher or a citizen or Emily and I have talked about kind of the transformation of the local food and agriculture policy in our town, which basically got changed because somebody had a conversation and said, we could work on this. And we're not elected officials and went through the process that was there to make it okay that you can have goats in your backyard now, which is a small thing, but goats can provide a lot of food. They can keep your lawn, you know. There are these small things that each and every one of us is capable of taking part in some place, and you don't have to be overwhelmed by kind of the systematic chaos. We have choices to make about how we orient ourselves to the world. Thank you. I'm going to feel better going into the day now. (laughs) Thanks, Paul. We're going to listen to that every morning before we start work. (laughs) Pep talk.
Unwinding is a collaboration between the Commons at KU and KU's College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. The Commons is a catalyst for unconventional thinking, interdisciplinary inquiry, and unexpected discoveries across the sciences, arts, and humanities. The College of Liberal Arts and Sciences is the heart of KU. It's home to more than 50 departments, programs, and centers, offering more than 100 majors, minors, and certificates. A collaborative and creative community, the college is committed to making the world better through inquiry and research.